0: We've been moving through the book of Acts and observing the life change that is supposed to come to people who understand what Jesus has done for them. And Acts 9 is a very important text. Uh, Acts 9 puts forward something that is the most difficult and most ridiculous thing to ever believe, that a person died and rose from the dead. And Saul understood that. That's what is going on as you come into Acts chapter 9. Is that you have Saul dealing with people who were going around saying, Jesus is the Son of God and Savior. He died and three days later rose from the dead. That's what Saul was dealing with. And he is persecuting those people. In fact, we were told at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 and in verse 1 that a great persecution has arisen against the people of God. Verse 3 says that Saul is going into the homes of men and women who are Christians, dragging them out of their homes, taking them to the Sanhedrin to put them on trial, to have them imprisoned because they believe in that fact. Saul understood that the very teaching of Jesus and the whole of Christianity hangs in the balances on one simple teaching, that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the foundation point. And that's what Saul is trying to deal with and what Saul is trying to eradicate. You'll notice in chapter 9 in verse 1 it says that Saul is still breathing threats. It's not like Saul did this for a day or two. He did it for a week, uh, a little bit of time, and then he kind of wore out on this. His goal is to get rid of people who believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. That's his whole goal. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Verse 1 of Acts 9 says, He goes to the high priest and asks for letters. To the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who were belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is not even content in dealing with Christians who were in Jerusalem or even in Judea. He now goes outside of that area and is looking for Christians outside of that region. Remember we saw that in Acts chapter 8 it says that except for the apostles, Christians are scattering from Jerusalem and they're preaching as they go. And so Saul is going to chase them and he's going to go find where they are. And he gets authority from the Sanhedrin to go to the other synagogues in other regions, even in Syria, Damascus, and go there. And if I can find Christians there, I'll drag them out of their homes and bring them all the way to Jerusalem, put them on trial, have them imprisoned, and perhaps even have them killed. And as Saul is in the process of doing this, verse 3, he's on his way to Damascus. He has his orders. He has the ability to do this. And we are told in verse 3, suddenly a light from heaven shines down around him. And Saul falls to the ground. And he hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to think about that question even for a minute. Because I think it is certainly interesting that Jesus does not say to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? That would have made sense. But why are you persecuting me? Not only a picture of Jesus alive, but being personally connected to those who belong to him? Why are you persecuting me as you go about and you are imprisoning Christians and threatening their lives? Why are you persecuting me? And I think it is staggering to think about this moment that here is the Jesus that Saul believed died and did not raise from the dead, now alive, talking to Saul and asking him, why are you persecuting me? That's everything. Because what Saul thinks is that this is a fraud and a fake. This is a false religion, this is blaspheming. And now the one who Saul says has not risen from the dead is now talking to Saul saying, why are you persecuting? You'll notice that it says there in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And the response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. I want you to go to Damascus. Go on your way. As you were going to do, you were going to Damascus. Go ahead and go there. But when you get there, Damascus, I want you to wait. And you're going to be told what to do. And that leaves Saul in a precarious place. Because we are told that in verse 7, there were the men who were traveling with him. They stand speechless. They heard the voice, didn't see anything happen. But they heard, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so verse 8, they go on to, Jerusalem, on to Damascus. And it says, his eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. He's blinded by the experience. And verse 9 says, for three days and three nights, three days here he is without sight, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. The strong, defiant Saul has been brought to his knees, and now he's awaiting further instructions. Now, I love how the account presses pause here. And turns its attention to another person. In verse 10 we are told about a man named Ananias. Ananias is a disciple of Jesus. Ananias is a person who is living in the area. And the Lord comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go to this particular street, verse 11, called Straight. Go into the house of Judas because there's a man there from Tarsus named Saul and he's praying, and he's seen a vision that you, Ananias, are going to come in, and you're going to lay your hands on him so that he can receive his sight. And I think a fair description of this paragraph is you want me to do what? Because that's what Ananias responds. Ananias is told, You need to go to Saul and heal him from his blindness. And you'll notice Ananias says in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, about how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I want you to see that Ananias says, You want me to go to Saul? Saul? We know who he is. We know what he's done. We know the authority he has. We know that he's come here to arrest Christians. You want me to heal him of his blindness? That's probably the best thing that could have happened, is probably what Ananias is thinking. He's looking for Christians. Take that away from him so he can't. You want me to go to him and have his blindness healed? You want me to reveal myself as a Christian to the one who is the primary persecutor of the people of God? The one who approved of Stephen's execution? The one who has the authority to take Christians back to Jerusalem and imprison them? You want me to go to him? I would just be like, you've got to be kidding me. I want you to notice that God's answer is, yeah. Yeah, I want you to go to Him. In fact, verse 15, go. For He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show Him how much He must suffer for the sake of my name. You have to love God's answer here. You want me to do what? And God says, yeah, I want you to go because he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's a chosen instrument of mine and he's going to carry the Lord's name to kings and rulers and Gentiles and to the people of Israel. And I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. God is going to use this Saul... To save other people. And I want you to be amazed by that. God is going to use this Saul so that he can go save other people. Ananias is afraid of Saul. And God's answer to to Ananias is I'm going to use Saul. And I want you to think about this for a minute. The one who is breathing threats who is threatening murder and imprisonment against the people of God, who has been dragging Christians out of their homes, putting them in prison, approving of their execution, God says, I'm going to use him. The guy who is absolutely the worst against Jesus, God says, I'm going to use him. He's my chosen instrument. Saul is a dangerous man, and Jesus says, "I can, and I'm going to use him. Would you do what verse seventeen says? So Ananias and departed and went to that house. <laughs> Are you in on that? <laughs> How nervous are you at this moment to go to the one who is looking for Christians and wants to kill them and you're going to walk into the very place where he is and say, Hi, I'm a Christian. God sent me to you. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I'm struck by those two words. First two words that Ananias says to Saul. I think I would have said, Saul, you are a terrible person. But God convinced me through a vision against my will. Brother Saul. He's believing what God has told him, that this persecutor, is going to be a follower. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you has sent me. So that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. You have Saul being healed. And as you see all throughout the book of Acts, immediately they are baptized. And Saul does the same thing. He has been fasting, he's been praying. He's been blinded for three days. Ananias comes to him, heals him of his blindness. He arises and is baptized. And what I want you to see is immediately, verse 20, we're told he's going into the synagogues and says, verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus saying, he is the son of God. Now remember, these are the synagogues upon which he had the authority to go into the areas of Damascus and to find the Christians and to drag them out of their homes and take them back to Jerusalem. He now goes into those synagogues proclaiming Jesus. you just imagine that? The one who just came in there recently and got authority to arrest people who proclaim Jesus. He goes into the synagogue and says... That Jesus is the Son of God. What changed? You'll notice verse 2, they're asking the same question. Verse 22, all who heard him were amazed and said... Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? This is the guy who is destroying those who say Jesus is son of God. And now he walks into the synagogue and says Jesus is the son of God. They're asking this question. What changed? What has changed? You'll notice even in verse 22 And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What changed? What changed is he saw the risen Lord. That's what changed. He didn't believe it. As I said at the open, you were being asked to believe in the apostle. If somebody comes in and says, somebody died and rose again three days later, you're going to say, you're crazy. That doesn't happen. And you're right, it doesn't. That's why God used this. It's not something that happens. And Saul is fighting against what he perceives to be a lie. Until this moment, when Jesus appears now to Saul. In fact, if you jump down to verse 26 and 27, as Saul leaves Damascus, And he goes back to Jerusalem. We're not told this by the text, but this is now years go by. And now he jumps down to Jerusalem, and he wants to join with the Christians who are in Jerusalem. Makes sense, right? But listen to what we are told in verse 26. It says, And they were all afraid of him because they did not believe he was disciple. Would you? The guy who spent years persecuting and threatening the people of God who in Jerusalem itself has dragged them out of homes and put them in prison and overseen their execution. He now walks in through the back door and says to everybody, Hi, everybody, I also believe that Jesus is Son of God. Can I be with you? And they all said, No. (laughs) No. No. Verse 27, but Barnabas, you remember Barnabas? You remember Barnabas? Barnabas back at the end of chapter 4. Remember Barnabas is not his name. Barnabas' name is actually Joseph. But nobody called him that. They had to call him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And we're told in verse 27, Barnabas takes Saul and brings him before the apostles and declares to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. What changed Saul? Because he saw the Lord. That's what's being emphasized again and again. Barnabas comes in and goes, no, no, it's okay, guys. He saw the risen Lord. And now he's been going around proclaiming that he saw the risen Lord. They all think he's faking it. And the son of encouragement has to come in next to him and say, no, no, he's not faking it. He's been proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. In fact, if you we skipped over, if you back up, he's been run out of town in the other places. And that's why he's here. Give it a couple of lines. He's going to get run out of town in Jerusalem also and have to go to Caesarea. And then he's going to have to go back up north because he's proclaiming Jesus. What changes somebody who is the most ardent vicious and violent opponent of Jesus except he actually saw him risen from the dead why else does he do this why would the one who wants to kill everyone who believes in Jesus now become a proclaimer of Jesus except he really saw him there's not another explanation Three things I want to talk about with us this morning, and the lesson will be yours. Number one, in Acts 9, you are supposed to see truly the amazing and overflowing grace of God. Can you believe, can you believe that God was willing to save Saul and use him as an instrument? Who's going through the contact list of people and saying, Saul's going to be the best one for this task? Who's going to pick him to be the one to say, okay, he's going to be my chosen instrument? None of us are going to pick him. We're all running away from him. We're in fear of him. That's what Ananias is saying. You want me to do what? You want me to go to him and heal him? You've got to be kidding. But amazingly, what you see with God is that no one is too far from him. No one's too far from him. In fact, God delights in taking people who others would say are too far gone, too sinful, too, too much, And using them to be instruments for his service. God loves to do that. (laughs) God loves to do that. And I think it's so important to see with Saul for our first point. Saul's sins did not disqualify him from being saved. And they did not disqualify him from serving the Lord. Didn't even disqualify him from being an apostle. And friends, that's true for us. What we are learning in the life of Saul is that your sins do not disqualify you from being saved or serving God. In fact, this whole event is done in a way to try to teach us this. Because who would believe that a persecutor could become a preacher? Who would believe that a killer could become an apostle? And yet this is the very thing that that Saul himself writes. He writes a letter to Timothy. Listen to what he says. He says, I thank him who's given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful. Appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. A persecutor. An insolent opponent. But I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of the Lord, of our Lord, overflowed for me with the faith and love that is in Christ. Notice this, but I've received the mercy and grace. But notice the point is not that Paul is saying, yay, look at me, I had mercy and grace. This is what he says next. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. Catch this. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's Paul, and he says, here's why this all happened. So you would see that it's not too late for you. That your sins have not disqualified you from being saved. And that your sins have not made it where you can't serve God. In fact, it's showing the perfect patience of God that's the picture that's being given to us first, is that if Jesus would be patient with a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent like Saul, will he be patient with you? You bet. You bet He will. This happened to Saul as an example for you, as he displays his patience for you. Number two. Number two is, God jars lives to wake us up to the gospel. It's a pretty jarring thing that happens here to Saul. And God does that. God jars lives so that we will wake up to the gospel. Saul had heard about Jesus. He knew what the apostles and the disciples were proclaiming. He knew what they were saying. That's why he was against them. They're running around saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the Anointed One. He died, yes, but three days later he arose and he has ascended and sit at the right hand of God. He heard them say that. He was there to listen to Stephen's whole sermon and approved of the execution. He knows what they're saying. And Saul believed after Jesus now jars his life. God had to get his attention. So that Saul would end his defiance. And submit to Jesus. That God jars lives to wake us up to the gospel. And that's what God has to do. Is that God has to get our attention. Just as he had to get Saul's attention. To end the defiance so that we will submit to him for salvation. And I just want you in this moment, I just want you to reflect just for a moment and ask yourself, how is God trying to get your attention? How has God jarred your life to try to wake you up to the gospel? It's what God does. Whether rather through good things or bad things, difficulties or prosperity or suffering, whatever may come, God's using those things in life to try to open your eyes, to grab your attention, to wake you up, so that you will end your defiance and submit to the Lord as, this, as your King and Savior. That's what God's doing. That's what He was doing with Saul, and that's what He is doing with us, is that we would wake up And that we would truly see our need for the gospel. Truly follow the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. God jars lives to wake us up. Is God jarring you to wake you up to the good news and end your defiance? Number three. The biggest deal of all for Acts chapter 9 is that the resurrection... Is supposed to change your life.
1: The resurrection
0: is supposed to change your life. It's supposed to change your life like it changed Saul's life. I asked this earlier. I want to ask it again. There was a person who proclaimed before he died that he would come back to life three days later. And it happened. And you might sit there and say, well, I don't believe that happened. And if you don't believe that happened, I really want you to reconcile this man named Saul. Why does he become a believer? Why does he change course? Why does he stop persecuting Christians? And why does he now start proclaiming Jesus really did rise from the dead? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why does Saul change? And you might say, well, that's the book of Acts, and who can believe that? That's tainted history. Well, let's use use Saul's own words. He wrote another letter. He wrote a lot about his life. Let's listen to what he said. Paul, He said this, First I deliver to you his first importance, what I also receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles but please catch the last sentence last of all As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So you would have to say Saul's lying. But why would he lie? What's his advantage? Because he wants to kill the people of God until he sees him alive. And that changes everything.
1: Friends, the resurrection
0: changes everything. Everything. The resurrection changes everything. And it's supposed to change everything in our lives, just as it changed everything in Saul's life. The one who is the strongest opponent becomes the greatest believer and becomes a follower. That's what the resurrection is supposed to do. It changes every defense and opposition you may have that you may believe. Because there's no answer for Saul becoming a follower. Except he saw the risen Lord. There's not another answer. And friends, it's something you can put your greatest hope in. He must have seen him. He told everybody that he did. And it's the only explanation for his change of life. And I think that is a clear picture of what the rest of chapter 9 is. Don't don't have a heart attack. I'm not going to now do the rest of chapter 9. Just a minute or two left. But things are placed in Scripture not by accident. Sometimes we approach books of the Bible and we come to like the book of Acts and it's just kind of random things about random people randomly placed in Scripture and that's never the case. After describing This life change of Saul, who becomes now a follower after being this opponent of Jesus. I want you to see two quick little pictures. If you look at verses 32 to 35 in your copies of God's word, you'll see that we're told about a man there who was bedridden, he's paralyzed for eight years, and now he's healed. And then after that, from verse 36 to verse 43, we read about a woman named Tabitha. She dies and is raised back to life. Why is that there? Except to say, that's now the life change that's being offered to you. Just as the resurrection change solves life, Now he's devoted to being a follower of Jesus. The resurrection changes your life too. You can be healed. You can be changed. And you can have life. That's given to you as well. These miracles symbolize important realities that are available to us that we would be able to be healed, that we will be raised from the dead and one day enjoy life with the Lord for eternity if you would give him your life. Friends, that is a wonderful hope. This life is not all that there is, and the resurrection of Jesus proves it. And that's what Saul wrote. He writes a whole section in a letter to a church in Corinth about the resurrection. And says, because Jesus rose from the dead, you will too. You will too. And it's exemplified here in Acts 9 with these two people healed and raised. What I want you to consider this morning is for you to respond like you see Saul responding. What's he doing when Ananias comes? He is praying. I would like to know the content of that prayer. Three days praying. I imagine we could have some good guesses of what he's praying. I'm sorry. I had it wrong. God forgive me. Confessing Jesus as the true Lord after all. You can imagine the content of that prayer. I encourage you to think in the same way that you need to Turn away from your sins. Confess Jesus to be the son of God who died for your sins. And just like you see Saul, he immediately gets up and is baptized. Follow what Saul did. The resurrection changes everything. Let the resurrection change you. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father... We thank you for these evidences and truths that are given to us. Lord, you know that life from the dead is impossible. Lord, people do not come back to life after death. And you used that impossibility to show your great power so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be healed that we could be set free from sin and death so that we could have hope of eternal life as well Lord thank you for this extraordinary display of your power thank you for your son thank you for his death thank you for his resurrection thank you for his exaltation And Lord, thank you for the servant of Saul that we have read about today. And Lord, we see how you dramatically jarred his life and changed his ways so that he became an instrument of yours. God, we pray that you would make us instruments as well. And Lord, that you would jar our lives when we wander away from this truth and then we wander away from you. When we stop looking to your son as being everything for our lives, jar us out of that, Lord. Wake us up. And, Lord, we pray that we would always put our hope in your son, that we would always put hope in the fact that Jesus lives and reigns and continues to reign for all eternity. Lord, we pray that as we consider our ways that you would forgive us, Forgive us for sinning, forgive us for living lives of selfishness, forgive us for when we forget you, forgive us for how often we turn away from you and seek other things. Forgive us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would convict the hearts of all for any who need to turn to you with all of their heart today, that they would do it today before it's too late in Jesus' name. What we're about to do is we're going to sing an invitation song. The point of the invitation song is usually the words of the song have you thinking about God. And thinking about what God has done for you. And thinking about what's available for you in Christ. The song that we're going to sing is asking the question, is your heart right with God? That's a powerful question to ask yourself. Are you ready to meet God? So as we sing this song, let the words drum around in your head and enter your heart. And truly think about, is your heart right with God and are you ready to meet God? And if you're ready to be like Saul, turn your life back to God, believing Jesus rose from the dead. He came to this world to save you from your sins. You're ready to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can, while we sing the song, come forward. If you're like me, that's terribly intimidating and frightening. And you don't have to do that. When the songs are over and the prayer is done, you can come talk to me. I'm pretty non-intimidating. I try not to be. But I'm always standing out there in the back. You come talk to me. And you can have that very thing done this morning. Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stay?